0: Living a pure life in an impure world is visible evidence that the gospel changes lives.
1: Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock.
0: Students, if you open your Bibles to Philippians 2, Philippians 2, we're going to pick up the narrative at verse 12, 12 to 18 today. Mark Twain once wrote, and I really resonate with this, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. (laughs) See the problem with a good example is it shows us what's possible, but it doesn't give us the power to perform it. A good example can inspire us, but it doesn't enable us. What we really need is not just an external example, what we really need is internal power to actually enable us to live out that good example in our own lives. Now, Paul's been writing to the church at Philippi. Uh, He's been in prison for four years, almost four years, two in Caesarea and two in Rome, and he's been writing them about the necessity of personal humility, which is not our natural state. And he's been telling them that humility is necessary to produce unity. And when people love each other and are unified together, it's so unusual that loving and serving each other is a powerful testimony that Jesus Christ actually lives in people because it's supernatural. The normal course of events is selfishness. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. They will do selfish just fine. We have to teach them to be selfless and share their toys, for example, just like we share our stuff, right? So Paul then gives them the supreme example of humility, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we talked about that last week. Christ emptied himself of his uh, position and prerogatives of heaven came all the way down from earth, heaven to earth, and He, even though he was completely innocent, he obeyed his Father's will, and he died for human sin and the worst kind of death, death on a cross. So Paul says, in light of that example, we should be obedient to our Heavenly Father and obey as well. Now, it's easy for us to look at Jesus and say, there is no way that I can follow that example. It's a really good example, but I don't have the power to live like that. And you're right. If you're depending on your own power, you can't do it. God, however, gives us the desire to obediently follow Christ, and he gives us the power to do so. See, after we're saved from the penalty of sin, at the moment of salvation, many of us go, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven now, I can live like I please, right? I got my fire insurance. Salvation is not the end of, it's the beginning of. Now you begin to mature and to grow and to become more and more like Jesus. That's the whole point. God is not interested in saving you and letting you stay sinning. He wants you to grow more like Jesus, which means less and less sin, more and more holiness, which means you should be sinning less today than you did six months ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. That's the goal, to grow more like Jesus. You say, well, how does that happen? Some people believe that spiritual maturity is 100% God's work and all a believer is just quiet and passive, and their motto is, let go and let God. I'm sure you've heard that, right? You can just be passive. I just surrender to God every day, and He does all the work in shaping me and making me more like Jesus Christ and more spiritually mature. Other people believe that spiritual maturity is 100% the work of the individual, and the believer must be active. And their motto is, if it is to be, it is up to me, right? And so they make lists and schedules and they devote themselves to spiritual disciplines, Bible study, they got prayer schedules, good works, fasting, self-denial, I mean, they got the whole bit. Actually, spiritual maturity requires 100% God and 100% you. Second Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that his divine power, his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, if you just read verse 3, you go, well, that sounds like it's all God, right? He gives me everything I need to grow in godliness, his divine power. Drop down two verses to verse 5, and you get a completely different picture. Peter says, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge. So verse 3 sounds like it's all up to God, and verse 3 sounds like it's all up to me. Diligence, moral excellence, that sounds like hard work. Actually, maturity, growing spiritually requires God's effort and your sweat. It's all up to you, and it's all up to God at the same time. Paul writes in Philippians that God works in and you work out. Go to verse 12, Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who has work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's the principle. Spiritual maturity requires both diligent work from me and complete dependence on God's work in me. Let me say that again. Spiritual maturity requires both diligent work from me and complete dependence upon God's work in me. So Paul uses the term, so then. He's, he's really looking back to what Paul had been previously discussing. And this was Christ's example. Christ's example of humility. So he says, in light of Christ's complete obedience to his Father, we should follow that example. And Paul was pretty obviously fond of this church because he called them beloved. He's obviously fond of this church. Um, It's a good thing that God loves us enough to forgive our failures because most of us fail regularly, before church even, maybe during church even, right? He says, you have obeyed in the past, which is interesting that this church has a habit of doing what God says. By the way, that's a really good habit to get into. Would you agree? When God says something, it's a good habit to do it immediately. See, hearing God's word does no good unless you do what he says. Knowing more about God's word does not do any good unless you do what he says. You can get a prescription and you can know you should take it, but it won't do you any good, Jeff is nodding, unless you actually follow the schedule and take the medication, right? Jesus said, if you hear my words and do them, you're like a person who builds their house on the rock, stable. If you hear my words and don't do them, you're like someone who builds their house on the sand. Well, the rock stands firm and the sands shift with the wind and the waves, so it's actually not just knowing, it's knowing and doing and following and obeying what God says that brings stability in your life. Now, when you read verse 12, it sounds like Paul believes that spiritual maturity is 100% up to the believer. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 seems to say the exact opposite. Spiritual maturity depends on God's work in me. He says, for it is God who is at work in you. Actually, it's both and. It's not either or. It's all of you and all of God. An example of this is the children of Israel. They've just left Egypt. God has done Of course, the ten plagues brought them out of Egypt, and they are trapped in the desert. They've got mountains and desert inside them. They've got the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them, and they are precisely where God wants them to be. Dependent, no way out. The only way forward is through the Red Sea, and they are terrified. So Moses said in Exodus 14, 13, but Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see in them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. So 13 and 14, verse 13 and 14, sounds like it's all up to God. Moses says, stand by and see the salvation what God is going to accomplish for you today. Well, that's not what God says. God says it's not stand by and passively see what God will do. It's go forward and actively experience the salvation of the Lord. So it's both and. This this phrase, work out your own salvation, it's not a command to work for your salvation. It doesn't say work up your salvation. It doesn't say work on your salvation. It says work out your salvation. Remember, the church at Philippi has already been saved, right? I mean, they know Christ, their sins have been forgiven. So this does not refer to earning your salvation in the sense of you have to work for your salvation. We know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So God declares us not guilty not based on our good works, because our good works are vastly insufficient, based on Christ's perfect work on the cross for our sins. And when we're confronted with the truth of the gospel, we still have to choose to express faith, to turn to God, turn from sin, and accept his gracious gift of salvation. Paul is not writing here about the process of being saved from the penalty of sin. That's when you come to Christ and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And I confess that I'm a sinner. Will you forgive my sins? I accept that. He's talking about after you're saved, it's time to grow up. He's talking about sanctification, which is a fancy word that means you should be sinning less and behaving more like Christ as you grow up. You should be becoming more like Jesus. He says, now that you've been saved, Don't stay a spiritual infant. I mean, if your children were stuck at three years old for the next 30 years, we would say something's wrong with this picture because the normal course of behavior is to mature, to grow, to develop, to learn new skills, to grow physically as well as as intellectually. Now, spiritual maturity is not automatic. With our children, if you feed them, they will grow right? I mean, that, you don't have to do much else besides that. Spiritual maturity requires God work and our work. Now, this word work out, it literally means to develop, to bring to full completion what God has already begun in you. It means to live out in daily practice what God has worked in you through the Holy Spirit when he saved you. It literally means continuous effort. Keep on working out. Now, in ancient times, This word work out had two particular applications. It referred to working a mine. You know, you're going in for ore, silver, copper, gold, silver. You worked a mine, or you worked a field in order to get a crop. Now, God has made many deposits in our lives, has He not? He's given us the Holy Spirit, He's given us salvation, He's loved us, He's chosen us, He's given us His Word, the Bible. He's given everybody here a spiritual gift or two. He's given you a spiritual family. He's given you the ability to communicate with him in prayer. He's given you the hope of heaven. And he's given you work to do on earth while you're here and people who need to hear about Jesus. So God's made a lot of deposits in our lives. He says, I want you to work that field with the seed I have put in your life and I want you to produce a crop. When you plant a seed in the ground and it sprouts, it takes a lot of work to bring that plant to full maturity and fruitfulness. You have to water it, weed it, fertilize it, prune it, cultivate it, fight the insects and animals who want to eat your crop and harvest it. I tried growing something as basic as tomato plants, cucumbers, and squash. The aphids ate them all and I thought I was paying attention. I overwatered the tomatoes and they all burned on the western side, right? Planted them too late so there was not enough foliage to shelter them, so toasted them in the sun. Growing food is not as easy as you think. Right? You should try it sometime. I would lose a lot more weight than I probably should if I had to eat my own, you know, garden just just saying. So Working out your salvation means you must choose to apply the power and resources God has already given you. You know, your house is wired for electricity. Most of us, your house is wired for electricity. Even when the power's on, what do you have to do to make the light work? You have to turn the switch. We're not going to grow in spiritual maturity without work any more than you're going to grow physically strong without sweat. You know, when you work out in the gym, it means sweat and strain in order to get physically fit. I remember 35 years ago working out in a gym in Modesto, and I'd be pumping iron, and there was this woman who came in, probably 45 years old, and she'd sit on a stationary bike, and she'd pedal, and she'd read the paper for 45 minutes. And she never broke a sweat in the year and a half I was there. And I thought, she only thinks she's working out, right? She's going through the motions, but there's really no sweat going on. Spiritual maturity requires holy sweat. Pastor Andrew's sermons don't write themselves, right? Just labor over them. You and I don't wake up each morning and we're suddenly more like Jesus than we were the night before. You know, the reality is, until you get at least one cup of coffee in a shower, most of us are not very much like Jesus at all (laughs) first thing in the morning. Some of us need two cups, right? So, the good news is, you and I need spiritual workouts, and who custom designed your workouts? The Holy Spirit, because He knows exactly what areas of your life you need to grow in, and He custom designed your spiritual workouts so you will grow. And most of our spiritual workouts involve getting bumped, and banged, and irritated, and annoyed by other people, who often bring out the worst in us. And that reveals areas of our life that God wants to correct. Now, Paul uses a very powerful athletic imagery. He's conveying the degree of commitment it's going to take to become more like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only run receives the prize? Here's the key. Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in everything. They didn't do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified. So the prize is growing more like Jesus. The price is holy sweat. Close to the end of his life, Paul's now in a Roman prison in 2 Timothy. He he writes to Timothy. He knows he's very, very near being executed for his faith. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. He's talking about a race course, the race course of life. You know, spiritual maturity is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Too many Christians have stopped running and started spectating. That's why they came to Christ 30 years ago, and they're still infants. Showing up to church is a wonderful thing, but if all you do is sit and spectate, you're just taking in information. You're getting lots of spiritual nutrition, no problem. You know what you need? Workout. You need spiritual exercise, not just nutrition. We need spiritual workout, and that requires action and commitment. And Paul says, you should be working out with fear and trembling. And you say, why fear and trembling? Well, the word for fear here is phobos. We get phobia from that. It means intense fear or terror. And the word trembling is tromos. It's where we get the word trauma. And trauma literally means to shake, right? Tremors. Here's the point. When you think of sinning against holy God and the consequences that follow, you should fear. You should intensely fear and shake. We should fear offending our holy God and we should respect him and stand in awe of him and reverent awe of him. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph and she tried to seduce him for months and months, most people would say, I can't resist that. Joseph resisted it and he said to her, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph was aware that all sin is ultimately against God. Paul says, work out your salvation, mature in Christ, sin less because we don't want to offend the God we love. We also don't want to compromise our testimony to the watching world. Furthermore, we don't want to experience the consequences of sin, which will bring God's loving discipline. We should not only fear God, you know what else we should fear? We should fear sin. The reality is we're all tempted to sin, and sin will kill you deader than Elvis. Here's how it happens. Satan wraps the sin of cyanide inside the chocolate of desire. And he tells us it will taste sweet. And it does for a little while. And then it kills us stone dead. It's terribly easy to take sin casually and God casually because we live in a culture that has redefined sin. It doesn't exist anymore. Everything is permitted. God doesn't treat sin casually. When you treat things casually, you get casualties. When we disobey God, it's treating God casually. It's refusing to treat Him with holy fear. Remember Aaron? Aaron's the high priest of Israel. He's got four sons. The two oldest ones are Nadab and Abihu, and they treat God lightly. They go into the tabernacle to perform the ceremony of worship, which was under strict commands, what you do and when, and they go in drunk. Number two, they disobeyed God. They didn't take holy fire from the altar or burnt offering that God lit from fire from heaven, they take their own fire and to light the incense, and God's called it strange fire and struck them dead for their deliberate disobedience. See, Paul says, your motivation for working out your salvation is, number one, you respect and honor and worship God. At the same time, you trust God's work, and you fear sinning against God. Why should we do this? Well, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, God's power enables us to accomplish what He commands us to do. He gives us the desire to do what He wants us to do, and He gives us the power to do it, but we have to cooperate. It says, God is at work in you. This boggles my mind. The infinite God of the universe lives inside this clay pot that's cracked and leaks, right? That's our bodies. That's the nature of life. Jesus spoke about bearing spiritual fruit in John 15, and he uses the analogy of a grapevine, and he says, Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. When we depend on him, and we remain connected with him, his life-giving power will bear fruit in our lives. If you cut the branch from the vine, the branch dries up, can't produce any fruit. They throw it in the fire and burn it. Without God's power in our lives, we can't produce any fruit either. Our problem is most of us try and do it on our own. We try and accomplish God's work and our power, and it's frustrating to the core. We try and be more patient with people in our own strength, and we don't have it. But God has the power through the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now, power is the ability to perform work. God is the power source that works in us to shape us more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, calls us to repent. The Holy Spirit arranges all your circumstances every single day to shape you more like Jesus, including the painful circumstances. I know your circumstances right now are less than optimal. How is that for polite, right? It's better than saying your circumstances really suck. But when you look in the mirror sometimes, I hate that word, but sometimes that's really reality, right? Those circumstances were arranged and allowed by God for your maturity. And most of the things that create maturity in us are hard, and they involve suffering and adversity, and we don't like them. We would rather stay infants where it's easy. But if you're raising children, what? They have to learn the hard way. Sometimes they slip and fall. That's how they learn to be careful when they're on wet surfaces, right? So God's power, unlike ours, is unlimited, and his infinite power is at work in us. One of my favorite verses in Merritt's is Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him, God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. So God's plans for us and his power in us are beyond our comprehension. See, our problem is never a lack of power. If God calls you to do something, he's given you the power already to get it done through the Holy Spirit. It's a lack of willingness on our part most of the time. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it our way. We want to do it in our time. We want to do it for our glory. God says, look, I will give you not only the power, but I'll give you the desire. And this is amazing to me. God works inside us, and he changes our desires to do his will. God wants us to do what's right, and he wants us to want to do what's right. Did you know that God moves people so that they will desire to do what he wants done? God changes people's desires. Ezra 1.1, it says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, this guy's a pagan king. And the Lord stirred his spirit up to do what? Free the Jewish captives. Haggai 1.14 says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel to do what? Rebuild the temple. I'm not pretending to understand this, but God is stirring up the spirit of people in Washington, D.C. and Sacramento right now. To accomplish his purpose, and I don't, pretend co- I don't pretend to understand it, but I believe that God is sovereignly in control. Proverbs says, God moves the heart of the leader like a water course, which he means he carves out the path the river's going to go, and the river, what, follows whatever course God carves out. People in power only think they're in charge. They're not in charge. They're accomplishing exactly what God wants them to accomplish. So when you read the newspaper, or I know nobody reads a newspaper, you read a news feed online and your blood pressure goes up and you practice those words you really shouldn't say because it really makes you mad, remember who's sovereign. It ain't them. Cool down. God's accomplishing his purposes. All of them. If you ever had a sense you'd need to make some spiritual changes in your life, it might be the Holy Spirit prodding you. Escuche, listen. If you ever long for a closer walk with Jesus that honors Jesus in everything, God may be stirring up your spirit. God stirs your spirit and my spirit to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish in the same way he does leaders. So my word here, God's word is, don't neglect God's word in you. The end result is God is pleased with our lives when we give him our all, and at the same time, we depend on him at the same time for everything. Augustine of Hippo that's a town in North Africa, St. Augustine, probably summed it up best, and I think this is a great line. He says, work like everything depends on you. Pray like everything depends on God. You cannot fall off the cliff on both of those. Do nothing, depend on God only. Do everything yourself, and don't depend on God at all. It takes both at the same time. Verse 14 really convicts me. I'm not going to like much of anything I'm going to say to you personally for the next five minutes because I'm convicted. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's the all things that convicts me. Here's the principle. When we complain and criticize, we are judging God as incompetent and uncaring. When we complain and criticize, we are judging God as incompetent and uncaring. Here's what grumbling is. Grumbling is complaining, griping, belly aching, whining, grousing. It goes, it sounds like it is. You know, it's just low muttering. People complain when their life does not conform to their own desires or expectations. I want it this way, and it's this way, right? Disputing is a level above grumbling. Disputing means to argue, quarrel, contradict, or criticize God's decisions or actions. Grumbling is under your breath. Disputing is in your face, right? That's the comprehensive command. God commands do all things without grumbling, not some things. One of God's major beefs with the children of Israel is that they were always complaining and criticizing Remember, God brought them out of Egypt with multiple miracles, ten plagues, through the Red Sea, opened the Red Sea up, water in the wilderness, manna, etc., etc. He had clearly divined His competence and His care for them for the last year or so. And despite all that God has done, Israel is always bellyaching. They complain about everything. Food, water, meat, manna, Moses and Aaron, And now, at Kadesh Barnea, they accused God of trying to kill them. And God had finally had enough. When they refused to follow God into Canaan, Numbers 14, 2 said, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness, and why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword?'" God says in verse 27, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, just as ye have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness. So they complain. The promised land is no good. It's filled with giants, and God's going to use those giants and kill us Better we should die in Egypt in slavery than be here in the wilderness. God says, okay, you think your way is better than my way? You'd rather die in the wilderness than follow me into the land of Canaan? Have it your way, Burger King. Die in the wilderness. Right? When God lets you have your way, that's not a blessing. That's judgment. Because our way is never as good as his way. And I think my way is really brilliant. It's never brilliant, unless it agrees with God's way. And that's where our world is today. See, all grumbling is ultimately against God, because he's sovereign. Complaining or criticizing is me telling God what he should do. Criticizing accuses other people of what? Not behaving like I think they should behave. So when I complain and criticize, I'm being self-centered. We have an entire culture of self-appointed morality police who usually on social media self-righteously complain about other people and judge them as stupid and evil because they have a different opinion than I do. Many people criticize other people because they feel better about themselves when they tear somebody else down. God says, stop it. Stop complaining, stop criticizing, stop arguing with me, and stop criticizing other people. Why? Number one, God's in control. Number two, verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here's the principle. Living a pure life in an impure world is visible evidence that the gospel changes lives. Living a pure life in an impure world is visible evidence that the gospel changes lives. And this word blameless, by the way, doesn't mean perfect. None of us are perfect. But it means a life that you cannot legitimately criticize as evil. It means there's no discernible sin in your life that you can be accused of. The word innocent means pure, unmixed, unadulterated with evil. You know, if you buy a gold coin, it'll say 100% pure gold. That means... There's only gold. It's unmixed with an alloy or something else. If they say it's, you know, so-and-so, carat gold, it might be mixed with something else, 18, etc., etc. We are children of God, and God says to his children, be holy because I'm holy. Live a life of moral purity. Don't be corrupted by the filth of the world. Because you're a child of God, you should act like a child of God. You all have children, right? And grandchildren. Many of you do. You have nieces and nephews. You have relatives that are younger. But they're related to you. It makes you feel good when they behave in a way that brings you honor. Correct? When they behave in a way that they should, it makes you feel good. Children often look and act like their parents. That's because they share a common DNA. We are children of God because we have God's DNA. He gave us a new nature. It's salvation. He gave us his own nature. When we act like God acts, we demonstrate that we are his children. And the world will notice because we live very differently than the world around us. So how does the world live? Paul describes his generation as crooked and perverse. Now the word crooked, the Greek word is scolios. We get scoliosis, scoliosis of the spine, It's a curvature of the spine. Someone with scoliosis has a bending of the spine that's not normal. And this is going to be pretty obvious. Crooked is not straight. That's a tough one. I know. (laughs) Crooked deviates from God's standard. We call morally righteous people what? Straight arrows. That person's a straight arrow. We call wicked people crooks or crooked. They're so crooked, you can't screw them in the ground. That's crooked, right? God is straight, and sin is crooked, and sinful people are crooked. In other word perverse means to distort. It means to deform. It means to disfigure, or warp, or mutilate. Behavior that is perverse distorts what is true, warps what's straight, and mutilates what's beautiful. Sin mutilates righteousness. It disfigures it like throwing acid in the face of someone disfigures that person. A crooked and perverse culture like we live in today loves sin and practices it until they're expert. Many people in our culture are experts at sin because they practice it all the time. If you do something long enough, you get really good at it. Crooked and perverse people are incompetent in doing good. They don't have the Holy Spirit power and they haven't never done it, right? And he talks about per- crooked and perverse generation. It refers to the age in which you live and the people who share a common belief system. Paul called his own generation crooked and perverse. That's because that generation, the culture of that era, the culture in Philippi, the culture in Rome, was filled with God-haters. It was filled with people who wanted to do things their way. And of course, we live in a culture of God-haters as well. We threw God out of the schools. We threw him out of the public square. Can't pray, can't talk about Ten Commandments, that's the position of religion. We are filled in a culture of God-haters. And God has called you and I, His people, to live in the middle of that perverse, crooked culture. God didn't call you to join a monastery. And you say, well, that's good because I wouldn't do that anyway. Try this one. God didn't call you to move to a state just because you think that there's a lot of people just like you that live there. Now, he might be calling you there, but if the only reason you're going is because I'm sick of these liberals, or whatever name you want to call them, you bring that to the Lord, because God called you to be salt and light where he's now planted you. If he's moving you someplace else, you go. But don't go just because you say, oh, I can't stand it here. Well... Paul's in prison. I'm sure he could have said, well, I can't stand it here, but that's where God wanted him to be, right? Okay, I've been meddling. (laughs) When you live a pure life and you do what's right, you're going to be noticed because it's obvious you're different. Paul says you're going to be lights in the world. Jesus commanded us in Matthew 5.16, let your light so shine before men. Why? that they may see your good works and glorify, honor your Father who's in heaven. See, lights illuminate dark places. A flashlight's generally unnecessary at a high noon in July in a Phoenix parking lot. You can turn them on, you never notice it, right? But it's very, it's very useful when we're in a blackout here. You know, there's a storm and the lights go off at 10 o'clock in your house. I would recommend a flashlight and not a candle because most of us don't know how to deal with candles. A lot of house fires get started with people lighting candles. Christians who only associate with Christians are not bringing the light of Jesus to dark places. Think about it. God has you affiliated with people that don't know him because you're a light light carrier. Your mission is to bring the love and light of Jesus to people who are lost. Now, some of the people you know that are lost love their darkness because they think it's going to hide their evil. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be seen. I want to sin, and I like my sin. These people will oppose your light because it exposes their wickedness. Others are going to be drawn to the light of your godly character and your good deeds, and they want to know more about the God you serve. The way you keep your light shining is found in verse 16. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I might have cause for glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Verse 18, and you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Here's the principle. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of our joyful sacrifice. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of our joyful sacrifice. There's two possible meanings to this first phrase. Both of them are accurate. One says, hold fast the word of life, right? Hold fast the word of life. And that means to cling tenaciously to something. I saw a news flow this week, and it was about uh, people sailing around the world. And... When you're sailing the Southern Ocean, you can deal with 100-foot high waves. Southern Oceans around Antarctica, very, very dangerous. Uh, I, I think you have to be mentally touched to do that, but there are people that wanted some adventure. And one of them, they have a cam going, and this wave comes along and just sweeps them off the boat. I mean, off the boat. And that's not warm water down there around Antarctica. But fortunately, they were tied off. They had a line which means they could only go back probably 20, 30 feet and the line caught them. If you fell off a ship and they threw a line to you, I suspect you would grab it. And what do we say? Hold on for dear life, right? Because that may be the only thing that will save your life and hopefully life is dear, right? It's valuable, it's precious, so you cling tenaciously. And we should hang on to God's word with that same tenacity. Don't be casual with God's word. Hold on to that. Number two, the word can mean hold forth the word of life. And that means we're holding out God's word, which can give eternal life to those who choose to believe it. We hold forth the gospel. We share the gospel with people. We proclaim the good news that their broken relationship with God can be reconciled through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is writing this, and he doesn't know how long he's got to live. He's actually not sure he's going to get out of prison. He hopes he will, but he says, I'm I'm ready to die. I'm going to go see Jesus. I'm ready for that. But if God wants me to stay here and labor, I'm going to stay here and labor. But above all, he doesn't want his life to go to waste. He doesn't want his labor with them to be a a waste. And and if they fail to live in humility, if they fail to mature in Christ, if they fail to live lives that adorn the gospel, he says, I will have put all my time in you and it will be in vain. Paul has invested his entire life in the gospel to this point and he compares his upcoming death he knows it's going to be soon not sure when he actually lives about five years after Philippians was written to a sacrificial drink offering so here's in ancient times you're a worshiper and you would you would bring your burnt offering which was meat usually an animal and you would have what we would call a barbecue except this is an open fire it's an altar made out of you know, mason blocks with cement, just like you have. Actually, it's made with rock. And there's this very hot fire, and you put your burnt offering, your animal, on the altar. By the way, animals were very valuable back then. That was a form of wealth. So you were sacrificing to win favor with the God you were worshiping. So there's this very, very hot burnt offering, and you would take wine, and you would pour it on top of this very hot fire, and it would vaporize. And this sweet smell steam would go up to the God you were worshiping at that point in time. So Paul says, I'm sacrificing my life every day in the service of the gospel. And my life is ascending as a sweet aroma to God because I'm sacrificing my time and my life for the glory of God. And he says, I want you to serve the Lord with joy despite hardship." And we've talked a lot about suffering in the book of Job recently. And joy, of course, is the theme of this book. So suffering doesn't mean you can't be joyful. If you're not joyful in suffering, you shouldn't be joyful because of suffering. When you're in pain, I'm not joyful because I have pain. God's not saying that. He says, when you're suffering, your joy is in Him. Not in the circumstances. If I've got cancer, I am not rejoicing because I have cancer. That is an evil thing. I'm rejoicing that my God has promised me heaven and will sustain me through that. My joy is in him, despite the circumstance. So it's not necessarily joy because of the circumstance. It's joy because of the God who will carry you through the circumstance. Does that make sense? Oliver Wendell Holmes US Supreme Court Justice once said he was a very famous probably the greatest Supreme Court justice since John Marshall He said quote I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers You ever gone you ever noticed that undertakers can't smile a lot I mean, John here is in the casket and you're smiling. You shouldn't be smiling. You should be sober, right? I know some undertakers. They're sober. I had one of them tell me, you'd be the greatest thing in the world for me because you're so skinny, I could do you in 20 minutes. (laughs) I said, I'm doing my best not to give you the opportunity. He said he liked me. (laughs) Yeah. We should not be behaving like undertakers. We have the joy of the Lord and death is not the end. Death is going home, right? To be with the Lord. My cousin just died of a massive heart attack at 58. And my brother just had a heart stent and a heart attack this last week at 57. I don't know what you need for a wake-up call. But I would suspect that some of us have had some wake-up calls. The question is, did we wake up? (laughs) Tracy, I know you woke up, brother. Amen. At a conference in a Presbyterian church in Omaha, people were given helium-filled balloons and told them to release them whenever they felt joy in their hearts. Now, you know, Presbyterians... They're, you know, they, they don't say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, raise their hands. they just not. They're, they're a little more sedate, you know. Baptists are pretty sedate, do, compared to some of our brethren. But at any rate, so they were given this balloon saying, when you feel joy, let the balloon go. At the conclusion of the service, one-third of the balloons had not yet been released. Now, in light of all that Jesus has done for us and has promised to do for us in the future... Let the balloon go. Express the joy. Yes, we certainly have a reason for it. Okay, we're going to summarize and then we'll do prayer and praise. So get those prayer requests ready. Point one, spiritual maturity requires both diligent work from me and complete dependence upon God's work in me. And that occurs at the same time. Complete dependence on God and holy sweat on my part. Same time. Number two, when we complain and criticize, we are judging God as incompetent and uncaring. What we're really doing is saying, God, get off your throne because I know better than you do. And you're not handling the universe very well because you're not doing it my way. Number three, living a pure life in a filthy world, in an impure world, is visible evidence that the gospel changes lives. And number four, the gospel of Jesus Christ is worthy of our joyful sacrifice. Let me just leave you with this. Every week when we see each other, there's been 168 hours that have gone by from this week to next week. Every one of us has traded that time for something, right? We all are given the same time. Every one of us makes decisions, what are we going to trade time for? Am I going to watch a show? Am I going to go out to dinner? Am I going to exercise? Am I going to do the yard? Am I going to nap? Whatever it happens to be. And there's nothing wrong with any of those. But understand that there's results from the choices you make because there's outcomes for what we choose to trade our time for. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing you can trade your life for that is eternal. Everything else is going to stay here. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the souls of people in God's word, makes it to heaven. It is eminently worth the rest of your life to invest time where Jesus Christ is calling you to do it. And he could be calling you to do it in some wild ways. It doesn't necessarily be inside the church. It could be, many of you are caring for loved ones. If that's where God's called you to do, changing diapers, taking care of things, driving people, whatever it happens to be, That's investing your life in eternity because you're doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Love you all. Now that you know.